Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt. My beloved co-host Octavia Bright sadly can't make it today, so I'm flying solo for our first show of 2021. This month, I'm very excited to bring you my conversation with Raven Leilani, the author of the acclaimed and best-selling debut novel, Luster. Luster is the story of Edie, a young Black woman in an entry-level job in publishing, struggling to pay her bills and to find time to devote to her passion, painting. When she meets Eric, a white middle-aged man in a sort of open marriage, she becomes entangled in his home and his family in ways none of them had imagined. Raven Leilani's work has been published in Granta, McSweeney's, and The Cut, among other publications. She received her MFA from NYU and was the Axon Foundation writer-in-residence there. Today, you'll hear my extended interview with Raven, and she also stuck around to give some book recommendations. I really hope you enjoy it. Stay with us on Literary Friction. Raven Leilani, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you for having me. So we've asked you to start with a reading. Do you mind setting it up? Yes. Um, So I was going to just read right from the beginning, because it doesn't require any preface at all. Um, So here we go. The first time we have sex, we are both fully clothed at our desk during working hours, bathed in blue computer light. He is uptown processing a new bundle of microfiche, and I am downtown handling corrections from the Labrador Detective Manuscript. He tells me what he ate for lunch and asks if I can manage to take off my underwear in my cubicle without anyone noticing. His messages come with impeccable punctuation. He is fond of words like taste and spread. The empty text field is full of possibilities. Of course, I worry about IT remoting into my computer or my internet history warranting yet another meeting with HR, but the risk, the thrill of a third pair of unseen eyes, the idea that someone in the office with that sweet post-lunch break optimism might come across this thread and see how tenderly Eric and I have built this private world. In his first message, he points out a few typos in my online profile and tells me it's an open marriage. His profile pictures are candid and loose, a grainy photo of him asleep in the sand, a photo of him shaving, taken from behind, It is his last photo that moves me, the dirty tile and soft recession of steam, his face in the mirror, stern with quiet scrutiny. I save the photo to my phone so I can look at it on the train. Women look over my shoulder and smile, and I let them believe he is mine. Otherwise, I have not had much success with men. This is not a statement of self-pity. This is just a statement of the facts. Here's a fact. I have great breasts, which have warped my spine. More facts. My salary is very low. I have trouble making friends, and men lose interest in me when I talk. It always goes well initially, but then I talk too explicitly about my ovarian torsion or my rent. Eric is different. Two weeks into our correspondence, he tells me about the cancer that ravaged half his maternal family. He tells me about the aunt he loved who made potions with fox hair and hemp, how she was buried with a cornhouse doll she made of herself. Still, he describes his childhood home lovingly, the digressions of farmland between Milwaukee and Appleton, the yellow-breasted chats and tundra swans that would appear in his yard looking for seed. When I talk about my childhood, I only talk about the happy parts, the tape of Spice World I received for my fifth birthday, the Barbie I melted in the microwave when no one was home. Of course, the context of my childhood, the boy bands, the lunchables, the impeachment of Bill Clinton, only emphasizes our generational gap. Eric is sensitive about his age and about mine, and he makes considerable effort to match a 23-year discrepancy. He follows me on Instagram, leaves lengthy comments on my posts. Retired internet slang interspersed with earnest remarks about how the light falls on my face. Compared to the inscrutable advances of younger men, it is a relief. We talk for a month before our schedules align. We try to meet earlier, but things always come up. This is just one way his life is different from mine. 
There are people who count on him, and sometimes they need him urgently. Between his abrupt cancellations, I realize that I need him too, in a way that makes my dreams delirious expressions of thirst, long stretches of yellow desert, cathedrals hemmed in dripping moss. By the time we set our first real date, I would have done anything. He wanted to go to Six Flags. Great. Thank you so much. It's a brilliant opening. And I <laughs> actually, before I read the book, <laughs> I'd heard you read that on a podcast that I listened to. And I knew I, I just had to read the book, partially because that narrative voice is so unapologetic in a way that I want to get into. But first, could you just talk a little bit about how Luster came into being? Sure. Um, so I had I came back to New York uh, from D.C. I'd been living in D.C. for five years, and I, uh, I came back to start my MFA program here um, in New York. And I'd come to, back to the city with an entirely different book, you know, that I thought would be my first novel. And after the first workshop I had, you know, I, I started having these really meaningful conversations with both my cohort and, you know, the kind of teachers that would become my mentors. And like really kind of come to Jesus moments around what I wanted to put into the world or like what I hoped would be my first debut. Um, and I, I realized I had to start over again, um, which I remember coming home. Like I remember that moment exactly coming home and looking at that whole draft and feeling a full panic, knowing that I had to start something different um, that I really meant. Um, and that's where Lester came from. It was really kind of a moment where I, I realized I wanted to and needed to start anew and to write with the kind of urgency that I think some of my previous projects didn't really have. Um, so for me, it was really, how do I write something that I really mean that feels urgent to me now? And where I landed on that was, I need to write about the body. I need to write about art. And I wanted to tell that story through um, a Black woman trying to kind of seize both of those things. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned both the body and art because those are two things in this book that are both related to each other, um, but also kind of get in the way of each other. And I wonder yeah. if you could talk a little bit about Edie because she's such an interesting character. She wants to be an artist, but life has thrown a lot of things at her that that make that difficult. Um, so I, you know, when I started writing Edie and she kind of came to me right away. Once I started writing, I feel like she was there. You know, I think kind of her central guiding principle is is hunger. You know, she is looking to be touched. She's looking to be witnessed and affirmed in like her personhood and her artistry, you know, and a lot of how she tries to seek that out, a lot of that is is deeply messy uh, and not always pleasurable. Some of it is uh, some of it is the pleasure of annihilation, even. Um, but she is an artist. You know, she's a person who is trying to seize the right uh, to make art um, while trying to carve out, you know, a path around the work she has to do to eat in order to do that that work that actually feeds her. Uh, so, so writing Edie, writing Edie, the kind of questions that I had um, were how do I, how do I show what it looks like to try and carve out space to do the work that is meaningful to you when you are tasked with trying to eat and, and pay your student loans and be a human in the world, um, trying to contend with the environments that are, are kind of openly and sometimes less openly hostile to you. That precarity is such a big 
part of this book and noticeably so. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about it. It's so much harder to make choices about what you do in your life when you don't have financial stability. And I really felt that yes. in this book. Was that something you wanted to show as well? That, you know, Edie does, I mean, she's such a fully realized character and she's such, she's a character who makes decisions and goes for things sometimes to her detriment. But she also is very bound by the fact that she loses her job and she doesn't have That's somewhere right. to live. And as you say, she needs to eat. Yes. I mean, I think honestly, the shape of the book um, exists because of that, that, that question of how is she going to survive? How is she going to eat? As I was writing Edie, I, I knew that I had to make work also a kind of legitimate part of her story, how she feeds herself and and how she has to try and kind of navigate around those questions to do the work that actually feeds her emotionally. You know, I often read books or watch TV and and wonder about the the work that is behind the scenes. Um and for Edie, you know, that that is sort of um, like it's no it's no mistake that the second half of the book, if I'm allowed to say, because I suppose is a spoiler, uh, the, the part of the book where she is more able to do her art um, is where those questions of where's my rent coming from? You know, where's where are my student debt payments coming from, where those are able to be put aside, at least for the time being. Yeah, for me, it was important as a, a person who. I think in a less extreme way, uh, maybe I was going through that myself while I was writing. Um, I've always written sort of in those those after hours, after the nine to five, you know, I'd get off work and I would um, come home and try and put the pages in and the going was, was slow um, and and it was deeply solitary work. So there's an element of, of having sort of a creative project or, you know, doing the work that, that feeds you. Um, in those liminal hours that it can feel unreal and you can and you have to do a lot more work to feel to justify to yourself that you both have the capability and the right to do that work um, and that, I think that made it onto the page as I was writing what it what it means to try and find those in-between moments to assert your artistry even as the work that you're doing to feed yourself is kind of fraying your psychic bandwidth in Edie's case, she isn't just dealing with the kind of demands of capitalism that comes kind of bound with the sexism and racism that she is she is trying to kind of navigate while she is um, while she tries to remain human enough to do her art. One of the things that I love about Edie, as I said, is how unapologetically she defies respectability, which you know, as you've said before, and as I think have other people have commented, yeah. feels in some ways even more radical because she's a Black woman. Um, and that just isn't something that is allowed of Black women in fiction a lot of the time. So was that something you really wanted to explore in this novel? Yes. Um, I mean, as when I, when I started writing this book, um, I, I wrote it, I feel like the only way I knew how which was to try and render a full person um, with both, you know, humanity and fallibility, which I think are, you know, mean the same thing. Um, I needed her to, to be a, a person who is 
allowed to make mistakes, who's allowed to kind of to flander, uh, to make the wrong decisions, as I think uh, many of us do, and and have to and have to make the wrong decisions we make that are part of the kind of trial and error of living. I wanted to afford a black woman that grace on the page rather than uh, depict a stoic and invulnerable woman who is virtuous um, in her suffering. I wanted that suffering to to be to be felt in a way that that was human. When she's hurt, I wanted it to be clear that she's hurt. You know, <laughs> I thought I thought that was yeah. important because I do think that adhering to you know the idea that there is a specific way to behave in order to be afforded empathy is a is a thing that flattens your humanity and so more than anything i think i i wrote i tried to write against that mandate of respectability but i also i think my primary goal was just to depict a black woman who is allowed to kind of to be varied in her humanity it felt very authentically young to me in a way that it's so unguarded and messy and you know seeking out of experiences and maybe not always driven by morality which I think is something that felt really refreshing that that's that's how a lot of us are when we're young right we're like trying things out and we're being bad people sometimes yes (laughs) yes sometimes we take the seat on the train when we give it to someone else you know um but but I also you know I also wanted to just in, in a craft, you know, sense. I felt that too, at least, you know. And I tried, I tried my best. I'm sure some of my biases, of course, still came through. But you know, I, I did my best to write without judgment, um, and but also to write in a way that was not ov- overtly moralistic, in that I was guiding the reader to a specific conclusion. And, and I did that more just because of how I feel when I feel that happening on the page or you know in movies or tv which is i think uh the response that that the most natural response to that kind of over over moralizing is is that you turn away (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. and so i i wanted to be a little sneakier you know i wanted to um allow those contradictions to exist on the page alongside each other Speaking of lack of judgment, I want to get into the other two maybe main characters in this book, who are Eric and Rebecca, this white married couple that we we heard Edie getting involved with Eric at the very beginning of the book. And I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that Edie becomes very involved in their marriage and in their home. <laughs> so was that always was that always the center of this novel when you knew when you talked about making that decision about writing something else was that a dynamic that you wanted to set up from the very start yes um well what's funny is I started this book really invested in that primary relationship with with Edie and Eric because you know desire I think is is enough to sustain a novel or you know uh, a thousand you know um and so I I started there uh, but as I wrote um, more toward this, you know, the reality of this open marriage, um, it felt um, it felt necessary that I develop the relationships between all three players in a way that um, in a way that allowed 
all characters involved to have their specific wants and needs and um, I mean even power differentials that exist between them you know because I think you know an open marriage or any open arrangement is is predicated on mutually agreed to rules and you know so we have two people who are trying to make their marriage work and have invited this kind of um, this variable into their you know into their home um, because of the kind of character Edie is and because of what she is seeking she is she's more of a um, she's more of a wild card she is very much out of control and so she kind of positioning uh, a person who is that ravenous <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, in the middle of a an arrangement that can only work uh, if there is order, it kind of gave me a natural uh, a natural conflict, but also a, like a really interesting human one that uh, that was exciting to write. I couldn't help but want to read this book when I read that pitch. You know, in some ways, it's <laughs> we all want to peer into other people's lives, and especially if as you say, in in a situation where it, it involves a desire, it involves sex, it involves, you know, relationships that are shifting and changing and, um, and power dynamics. What I really liked about how the book unfolded is that I really didn't know what would happen with this marriage. Um, I think yeah. there are certain stories that we tell about these kinds of dynamics and what happens when you introduce this yes. kind of variable into something that's more solid. And it doesn't really play out that way. And that was great. And I wonder, was that just letting the characters make the decisions that you would think that they made as people rather than following a script? I did want to write against like the sort of archetypical idea of what this would be and you know I what you said just just then of the kind of the the feeling of peering into someone's private life like that more than anything is, is something I'm constantly trying to um to replicate on the page and so in order to do that I felt that I I, I had to write toward discomfort uh and write toward what felt at least felt like organically like an unstudied dynamic so that allows them to be to be awful to be confused <laughs> to, to be human <laughs> and yeah I, I definitely didn't go into this because what you were describing in terms of how this normally goes is I think a cautionary tale and I can't say that perhaps <laughs> this isn't isn't a cautionary tale you know that part doesn't exactly go as planned. But I definitely, as I started uh, kind of establishing this relationship between these three players, my my goal wasn't to um, to write toward what can go wrong, you know, despite mm -hmm. your best laid plans. Um, it was it was to kind of, and so I guess I should also um, reveal myself and say that uh, I also, at a certain point in writing this book earlier earlier on did not know how this was going to pan out myself and so I imagine that energy made it into, made it onto the page but more than anything Eric Rebecca and Edie are all wanting something wanting some affirmation 
or some newness or or some seriousness or some intimacy. And I wanted to let all three players seek that out in a way that made sense with with who they are. What was it like to to write that relationship between Edie and Rebecca? What kept drawing you to that? It was really fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Um, it was uh, it was one of those moments where I think your draft tells you what to do. You know, because I think the initial idea of this book, uh, it, it could have been a more balanced um, kind of entanglement between the three. But the more I wrote uh, of Rebecca, the more it felt like there needed to be a different um, kind of communion between these two women, one that is conspiratorial, one that is kind of full of the friction of their antithetical lived experiences colliding, one that is an erotic because of that. Um, you know, I as I was writing this relationship, I I wanted to be rigorous in the way that I was real about how their, you know, their different lived experiences might kind of realistically manifest in a, in a relationship like this. Their relationship initially is one in which Rebecca is fully aware of that power differential that exists between them and is taking full advantage of it. You know, more than anything, mm-hmm. those initial steps that she takes toward Edie are are coming from a desire to control what is kind of a unaccounted for variable in her marriage. (laughs) And then it becomes something else as two women kind of lower their mass and are allowed to be naked is not exactly the right word, but in this book where Edie is constantly performing and um, trying to project whatever kind of face is, is most, is most safe, is most convenient that this space with another woman is a place where she is allowed to kind of let that performance lapse. And Mm. as I wrote this, I drew from what it feels like, I think. And I feel like a lot of women know this relationship, this kind of relationship where you meet another woman and it is profound right away. Like there, there is no kind of like shallow preface. It is a relationship that that starts and then is immediately this kind of beautiful, ugly thing. You know, Rebecca introduces a totally different kind of rigor into Edie's work. She, you know, pushes her to to kind of, in a way, to be better, to be more serious in her craft. And um, that that felt true to me in terms of who it is generally who kind of guides you to that um, to that epiphany around around work. That is important. It's always it always tends to be women who who see you and treat your work seriously, and who kind of inspire you to to be better. Yeah, that's so true. And just hearing you say words like intimacy and power, I was thinking about the role that sex plays in this yeah. novel, which is a very varied role. Which is one of the things I really appreciated. You know, I think you show that sex is never just one thing. And also that sex can can have a lot of different forms. Like it's incredibly hot um, in this novel, <laughs> but it's also kind of silly. It's also sad yeah. at points. It becomes a conduit for intimacy, but it, it, it can also be a, a way of distancing or asserting power. And I wonder if you feel that way about sex as, as something that's 
it's kind of slippery and has all of these different meanings and uses. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly think that when it's hot, it's because it's allowed to be silly, right? It's, it's hot because it's allowed <laughs> to exist. It, it's allowed to kind of be strange and awkward um, in the way that, that a lot of sex is. It's sex that accounts for the kind of inherent drama of two bodies or, or three, <laughs> you know, or four um, in the same space revealing themselves to each other. And, and sex definitely, there was a lot of different kinds of sex in, in Lester. And uh, it, that was important to me that it be, that it be forward in that way. And that, because uh, I think, you know, in general, it's, it's funny to bring this up while we're talking about sex, but I feel about sex the way I feel about representing, um, you know, all of Edie's sort of body drama on the page. You know, I, I wrote this wanting to be frank about, you know, how does her, you know, how are her intestines working? You know, um, uh, what does it feel like um, to be pregnant? You know, all of the things that I feel like we are um, tasked with prettying up or or even not talking about at all, I wanted to be on the page. And it, with sex, it was no different. I wanted it to be unstudied in the way that we were talking about earlier. I wanted my reader to potentially feel um, like they were reading or watching something that they should not be. <laughs> you know, at least that mm. those are the kind of scenes that move me. The scenes that feel, that make you feel like a voyeur. And, and this is the thing that I, 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 I do say uh, around sex, which is um, there is something, I can't remember who said this. It's an art critic. I, I really respect uh, he was writing about the philosophy of voyeurism, the idea of being being kind of privy to something but being unable to enter it, the kind of magnetism of that of that barrier, but also lack of barrier. And I feel that I feel that with with sex. It was important to me that I be honest about the logistics of it, like the actual logistics of sex. And I think being true to the way that it is awkward or silly makes room for the way that it is tender and sexy. And some of the sex is, is numbing. Some of it is a kind of annihilation. Some of it is, is tender. Some of it is desperate. And I wanted to make room for like, you know, all the ways that sex, like the way we use sex, that it varies depending on kind of where we are in life and, and what we're seeking. It's something that's said that sex is really hard to write and it's really easy to write bad sex. And I feel like on on this podcast, we end up asking writers about how to write good sex. Um, and I wonder if, if <laughs> I wonder when you were writing the sex scenes, like, was there anything you wanted to avoid? Um, was there anything like you found yourself doing that you didn't want to do anything that felt wrong or anything that felt like particularly like it unlocked things for you and and let you explore things in in that way yeah. that you were hoping to the kind of voyeuristic for sure and it, it ties into that it's it was how do I <laughs> how do I make it so that my reader and I have no choice but to look and and so it was a real decision um to to kind of not place any mechanism in the text that would aid a reader 
in in looking away from the act, you know, and, and that meant kind of being explicit in, in what is actually happening on the page um, bodily, technically, you know, like the, the kind of technical components, and which isn't, isn't <laughs> sexy at all, right? You know, but the technical components of sex, you know, I, I wanted that to be there uh, on the page. But I also, I also think that because this book is, is one in which there are kind of a, you know, a slew of unbalanced power dynamics that that lends itself to, that lends itself to, to really interesting sex on the page. Um, the, you know, the power dynamic between Eric and Edie is unbalanced. And this, even though, you know, Rebecca and Edie don't, you know, they don't have sex, the, the dynamic between them is also unbalanced. And, uh, I think that that kind of that oscillation, along with the resolve to um, make it as hard as possible to look away from the act that is happening on the page, is at least how I how I tried to how I tried to approach it. And I, and I would also say too that um, um, I also wish I could remember who said this, but there is this. Um, it's it's easier I think to write bad sex than good sex. I mean, I might have to take that back. I don't know <laughs> entirely if I'm being real about that. But <laughs> I think it is it is a really vulnerable thing to say, this is what feels good, as opposed to this is what feels bad. And so there are moments where I felt myself writing toward that, kind of writing only toward the sex that is perhaps nihilistic, that is that is numbing, and that is kind of just technically bad. Um, the kind of sex that a character like Edie would experience from a remove. Um, and so there were moments where I felt, no, I have to bring her closer. I have to, I have to kind of be vulnerable enough to, to depict her in moments where it feels good. I love that idea of making it so that the reader can't look away. And I wonder if you feel that that applies to your writing in this book more generally. Was that something that you wanted to achieve with the entire story and not just the sex scenes. Yes, definitely. You know, and I think that that Edie being uh, an aspiring artist um, kind of helped me in that, in that where she is a person who is constantly observing and, and kind of cataloging, you know, her environment and the kind of people in, in that environment um, you know, I, I, as the writer, am, am obviously doing that. Um, but, you know, a Black woman who is trying to uh, realize her art, you know, she is both, she's hyper vigilant, both because she is, uh, you know, an aspiring artist, and also because she is a, a Black woman in the world whose safety kind of hinges on her ability to understand her surroundings. In the writing of this book, I, I hope that there would be a um, an attention to detail that would speak to that level of observation. And so, yes, I, I do think that the philosophy I have around sex and trying to make it so that um, my reader it has a harder time looking away, it, it applies to it applies to everything else. And I think uh, the way to do like the way to do that is simply to um, I mean, not simply to because it, it it's hard and um but just to tell the truth, to write toward what is uncomfortable, to write toward what feels private, 
or, or even what feels like specific to you and that you feel like you're the only one who has, who has felt this or been through this. Cause I think inevitably that's not true. It was really interesting what you said just now about vigilance. And um, I think one of the things that really kind of lurks throughout this novel is, as you say, um, Edie having to be hyper vigilant as a black woman. Um, yes. Every interaction she has. And and I think you really bring out the violence that is is lurking in, you know, in the city, but also in the suburbs. And I don't want to give too much away, yes. but that becomes a big part of this novel. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Like, why why was it important for that to be a part of the story? I wanted to also talk about not just the um, the most kind of visible and overt manifestations of, of violence and surveillance that you kind of navigate as a black person. You know, I wanted to talk about the, the more covert, um, the more kind of subliminal um, moments that you kind of feel as a black person moving through the world. And, and, you know, when she moves to this, you know, suburbs, if I'm, I'm not entirely sure if I'm like not allowed to spoil, but you know, there's the second part of this book takes place in, in the suburbs. Um, this is the suburbs would normally be a place if, if Edie were a white character where she might experience um, sort of the malaise of, of the suburbs or kind of the, the, um, kind of melancholy you feel in a place where where there is a stasis and by stasis I feel like what I mean to say is a kind of um, a kind of safety that it that is often I think positioned as um, as a sort of central drama of being in a place like the suburbs but for Edie you know she's a black character and as she moves into the suburbs she realizes that you know she's immediately aware of the way that she's being surveilled. She is immediately aware that she's taking up, um, she's inhabiting a space that is sort of deemed not to be hers to take up. And that, you know, even though the eyes that she feels on her as she moves through this neighborhood are, you know, are, are, are eyes of, you know, strangers, that is itself kind of a, um, an existential problem, you know, that she has to, kind of navigate in this place that for a character who is not black would be safe. And so I, I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to write toward that and, and be candid about how everywhere she goes, uh, there is, there is, there is still reason to be hypervigilant and that hypervigilance has a cost. Uh, it has a real psychic cost of, of not being able to kind of let down your guard um, enough to be to be soft, to be human, to be vulnerable, and especially vulnerable enough to do the work that she's trying to do, um, which is paint. As you were talking about that, I was also thinking actually of the beginning of the novel when Edie's working at um, a publisher, and there is another Black woman who works there who is kind of set, I don't know, I don't want to say in opposition to Edie, but they've definitely kind of chosen different mm -hmm. paths in terms of how they move through the publishing world. And and this other woman is definitely destined for success. But Edie says at one point, it is an art to be black and dogged and inoffensive. And you get the sense that yeah. of the toll that it takes just to be kind of presentable to white people. And 
And in in a way yes. for Edie to do her art, she has to, she, she almost can't do that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's it's not an accident that Edie, when she finally comes to the canvas and, and is trying to paint her self portrait, that she um, that she is having trouble and can't see herself clearly, you know, or at least well enough to put her, even her own face onto the canvas, because she has spent um, so much time in a uh, kind of you know performative posture um, that even getting her own likeness down to the page, she has to contend with that distortion, you know, that she is subject to in her, in her public life. Um, and they are, it's funny, like as, and when I wrote that, uh, when I wrote that chapter with Aria and Edie, I, I wanted to be I, there too. I wanted to be candid about the two tacks that two different black women have taken to survive, you know, both they they have, almost kind of antithetical um, approaches to that. Um, but they're both, they're both trying to survive in an environment which is intolerant of like the full, like the fullness of their humanity. You know, Aria has mm. sort of um, absorbed that and is doing what she has to do, which is flattening herself. And Edie, I think, to be honest, I think Edie is actually incapable of, of doing that kind of um, that shape shifting exactly as well as Aria. But Edie has has chosen to opt out, at least there, at least professionally. You're an artist yourself. And could you talk a little bit about how your work as a visual artist and as a writer intersects? Um, and I, I wanted to know specifically, do you see them as part of the same kind of general creative project or... Are they more complementary to each other? Are they more kind of set against each other? How do you think about the different kinds of art that you do in your life? So I think they definitely they definitely have some area in common. With with painting, painting was my very first love, and uh, it was the very. This is gonna sorry. This is a long this is a long answer, but this is the, it was the first thing I really loved doing, and. So the very first heartbreak I ever really had when I had to kind of come uh, to grips with um, my own personal limits in the medium. And so by the time I got to writing and I knew that I also loved doing that, I already had experience. I already knew what it felt like to love a thing and to, to find, to realize that I needed to do more work to be where I needed to be to practice it. And to not love it enough to continue <laughs> the work to be better. And so by the time I came to writing and, it, and I experienced the moments when it was hard and still wanted to write, that's how I knew that that was, that was what I needed to do, what I wanted to do with my life. So I will say that having, ha- having first um, loved and, and failed at painting early in my life, it gave me a context to understand uh, how much love is enough <laughs> um, for a medium. Uh, I really, I really do. But I will say the way that they're connected in practice is that I think both require a, uh, a kind of merciless attention to detail. I mean, depending on, on what you're painting. But for me, I really love to do portraiture. I love the human face. Um, I think it is like, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's both a tough, uh, a tough, subject because 
all humans are our expert in, in the human face. We, we, we are able to kind of understand whether something is wrong <laughs> with the proportions, with the metrics, you know, without even trying because it's the human face. So it's, it's a hard subject in that you have to get it right. But it also is the best subject because of its sort of range of expression. And I think the kind of inherent vulnerability of trying to kind of both look at and, and manufacture a human face. And with writing, is this, writing is the same. I feel like it's, it's data collection. Um, it's you have to be willing to kind of to look closely um, uh, to kind of to be curious, to be invested in the part that is discovery. I think both painting and writing gave me that. Uh, so I think, yeah, they, they are linked. They are linked, though, I will say writing for me is that's the thing I do best. That's where I feel like I'm in control and the words actually come as opposed to. <laughs> when I'm talking in real time, you know, uh, and when something is wrong, I maybe need to step away for a couple of days or a year, who knows, but eventually it comes <laughs> with painting with painting. It is, it is chaos. I really, truly, um, it is when I, when something goes wrong, I have no idea what it is. And, uh, it's, it's a very much just like, um, <laughs> it, it's, it's, a, it's different in that way with, with, with the page, I feel, I feel at home. I feel warm. Um, I feel like I'm in my kind of escape hatch. Uh, with with painting, I still I still feel that kind of that terror of of what will this next stroke do? Will it ruin it? I love that answer. And I I think maybe for my last question, I'd love to ask you about something that's maybe connected, which is I really love the way that you get into nerd culture in this novel, um, especially <laughs> via um, Akila, who's Rebecca and Eric's adopted daughter, who um, uh, Edie develops a, an interesting relationship with her, partially because uh, she's Black and Edie kind of can't not try to help her um, in this incredibly white space. But um, yeah. and there's a lot more we could get into there. But Akila is a total nerd. And this novel features like cosplay and comics and RPG and and like, uh, yeah. you know, role playing video games. And I just loved that. And I, I wondered if that was something that you really love, like whether you had to research it, what interests you about nerd culture and why did you want to delve into it in this novel? Oh, God. I mean, I really, really do. Like, I really love all of those things <laughs> I wrote about. Um, uh, you know, in, in the book, for the book, I, I thought it was important that Pila be a, a young person who also has a, a, a real source of joy. And, and you know, for Edie, that's disco. For Akila, that is, you know, that's all of the kind of nerd ephemera. And, and I absolutely wrote from my heart <laughs> for every kind of bit of, um, of fandom that you see there on the page. I feel like the way I learned how to communicate or even relate to people, it was through the things I loved. Um, it was through fandom. Um, my brother, he was really heavily into comics and he gave me my first comics and uh, introduced me to my first video games. And um, I really, I grew up feeling enormous comfort and love for those imagined worlds. And, you know, I, I played almost, well, not almost every, but I kind of grew up playing 
any RPG that I could get my hands on, um, you know, watching all of the anime, going to small local, you know, cons in the area until I could branch out to like the big ones in New York and San Diego. So that I wrote from from pure love and fandom uh, for that character. I wanted to give her that as it really is, it is a special thing when you're coming up and especially if you're coming up when you're kind of a little bit of a loner and you're perhaps, you know, like I was and I like Aquila was, you're just kind of an introverted kid. Having that fandom, having those sort of imagined worlds as your escape hatch is both, both you know, a in at some moments a shameful thing that you kind of, it's a private thing that you protect fiercely, but it also is a site of such beauty and it's such an earnest and at its best communal thing. Uh, and how it functions in the book, you know, is just as a, as a real kind of joyful site for two black women to kind of draw closer to each other as, as Edie and Akila do kind of through these kind of various, you know, digital interfaces. I hope that that answer made any kind of sense, but it was really <laughs> just like, it was it was pure joy. Um, it was writing definitely from my own love of, you know, a fandom. No, it, it did. And your joy and passion comes through in your answer as well. So <laughs> thank you very much. Raven Leilani, it has been such a joy to have you on Literary Friction. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. This episode is sponsored by Picador. As we begin this year spending more time in our homes than ever, we're looking to the best international fiction and fiction in translation to sate our desire to see the world. Miyako Kawakami is a poet and novelist from Osaka, Japan, and a prize-winning international literary sensation. Breasts and Eggs, her first full novel translated into English, was published in Japan in 2008 to great acclaim, selling over 250,000 copies, while also attracting some criticism from more conservative circles. It explores the lives of three women, a 30-year-old in a suburb of Tokyo, an aging hostess despairing the loss of her looks who has traveled to Tokyo in search of breast enhancement surgery, and her teenage daughter, who is unable to deal with her own changing body and her mother's self-obsession. Translated beautifully by Sam Bett, it is a radical and intimate portrait of working-class womanhood in Japan, and was chosen by Elena Ferrante as one of her top 40 books by female authors. Haruki Murakami said Breast and Eggs was breathtaking, so amazing it took my breath away. And Anne Yu, who we had on the show last year, has called it bold, modern, and surprising. It's also on my bedside table, and I really can't wait to read it. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with our guest, Raven Leilani, to give some book recommendations. Raven, what book would you like to recommend to our listeners? The book that I'd like to recommend is Hex by Rebecca Dinerstein. It is a really beautiful book about obsession, longing, and science. It's told from the point of view of a young scientist who is kind of obsessed with their um, what I think might be thesis advisor um, but it is it's really beautiful it kind of does the thing that I love and can never not say no to in books which is a really kind of complex relationship between two women 
that it oscillates and is full of longing and error. It is just really, and it's it's just gorgeous. It's really gorgeous on a sentence level. It's, um, I think, uh, Rebecca Dinerstein occasionally writes poetry, and you can feel that on the page. It's like deeply lyrical and kind of up against the language of science. It's it's just an extremely cool hybrid. So that's the book that I, I'm reading that I really, really love. That sounds great. And I also can never resist a book that's a deep, complex relationship between two women. So yes. um, I'm sold. Has it has <laughs> it been published already? Yes, yes. It published last year. Amazing. Okay, I'll check it out. The book I'm going to recommend this month is The Interestings by Meg Wallitzer, which was published in 2013. I think it was a bestseller when it was published, and I remember people talking about it, but I didn't pick it up at the time. I actually picked it up over the break because I just felt like I really wanted an absorbing long novel to read. And my friend Alexandra had told me how much she loved it earlier in the year, and that was exactly her experience of it. And I am happy to report that that is exactly what it is. It's this big decade-spanning novel about relationships in the mode of people like friends and or eugenides. I feel like, I mean, those are very unfashionable writers for other reasons, but I feel like that kind of storytelling is a little bit unfashionable right now, but I just absolutely love it. And I was so happy to be in that mode. It's about a group of friends who meet at an art summer camp in the 70s and then follows their lives as they kind of spin out from that summer in relationships with each other and away from each other. One of the big themes of the novel is talent, how we make sense of the gifts that we are given and the lives we have lived or could have lived and what we make of our lives and and how we make our lives. It's asking really big questions, but it's not just a novel of ideas. What I loved is the characters. I was so absorbed in their lives and they so immediately came alive on the page in ways that just stuck in my brain for a long time. I cried at the end. I hardly ever cry when I'm reading. I just really loved it. It's such a humane novel. It's so absorbing. It's so wonderful. And I'd really recommend you pick it up if you like the sound of it. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Raven Leilani and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. And if you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. Octavia and I will both be back soon with another mini-sode. Thank God I don't like running this thing by myself. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt, and this is Literary Friction.